Today's episode is sponsored by the Academy for Virtual Teaching, a community of creatives building proficient, profitable, and professional online teaching businesses. As a solopreneur, you understand that feeling of exhaustion. There are limited hours in the day and only one of you to go around. The Academy for Virtual Teaching will help you develop the skills needed to add online education to your business model. It's a free, private membership community of supportive colleagues sharing the love of making things with students around the world. They've got an entire library full of equipment reviews and technical skill-building workshops. And they invite you to join the Academy for Virtual Teaching at a4vt.com. That's A, the number four, vt.com. They can't wait to see you there. Thank you so much, the Academy for Virtual Teaching. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 237 of the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals where you can strengthen your creative business stay up to date on industry news, and build connections within our supportive trade association. Check it out at craftindustryalliance.org. Today on the show, we are talking about modern quilting with my guest, Libs Elliott. Elizabeth Libs Elliott is a textile artist exploring the intersection of technology and traditional craft by using generative code to design and make handmade quilts. A deep appreciation for craftsmanship, design history, and future-focused applications are all reflected in her work. She studied material art and design at OCAD University and lives and works in Toronto, Canada. Lips has been making quilts since 2009 and designing fabric collections since 2015. Her commissions include work for individuals and corporate clients such as Absolute Vodka. She has exhibited her work internationally and been covered by press such as Gizmodo.com, Design Milk, and Casa Vogue. Libs Elliott, welcome. Thanks, Abby. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you. I've admired your work for so many years. And I actually thought maybe we could start in an unusual place, which is around generative um, AI. You know, I feel like this is the Ooh. big topic in the news right now. And it's so funny because you've been doing this forever. And now it's like putting a prompt into chat GPT or into one of these AI art generators and getting something back. And then maybe using that in some other creative application is what everybody's talking about today. Um, and so I thought maybe you might have some thoughts about it since maybe you can start by telling us that process that you use and kind of discovered to generate patterns for your quilts. And then, um, yeah, reflect. I'm sure you've been following this news a little bit. So just reflecting on on why that's an interesting process for you. Yeah, sure. <laughs> that's so funny that you're kicking it off with the, the big um, questions. Um, so there are two different, those are sort of two different ways of creating digital art. So there's generative art, which is usually um, generated using uh, programming languages. And then there's AI art and AI, and this is me speaking from a non-technical person point of view, really. Um, but AI art is that prompt-based um, using um, existing platforms and um, 
tools to to generate art using prompts, right? So those are sort of two different things. So I have more knowledge and understanding of generative art um, because I use a programming language called processing. And processing is an open source um, Java-based language um, that I started using back in 2012. Um, I didn't just happen upon it. I have a good friend named Joshua Davis, who really is one of the um, early adopters of creating uh, digital artwork. And so he was the person who, I mean, he's been creating digital art for over well over 20 years. Um, but he's the one who uh, I worked with on writing this piece of code that I use to randomly generate a lot of my designs, whether it's quilts. Sometimes I use it to design some of my fabrics. Um, so it's just a language that has a visual output. And so depending on the um, parameters that you set in the code, you'll get this random output. So it's kind of, it's all sort of algorithm based and it's a really fun process to not know exactly what you're going to get when you press that button. So Right, um, because it's, it's yeah. very difficult to actually create something truly random. Like if you yourself, you know, exactly. were to sit down with a piece of graph paper or something and just be like, I'm going to make a randomized pattern that includes triangles or something like that, yeah. or triangles in three colors. Like you're, it's so hard to actually make it random. Exactly. And that's why I did, I started out using a piece of graph paper and trying to draft something random. And it was really hard. And I did make a quilt, um, initially from that. And I gifted it to Josh and then Josh saw what I was doing and it got him thinking about all the cool geometry that is seen in, in quilts. Um, and he started to pull those shapes into his, into his, some of his digital work. And then I said to him, you know, I did this one design with my brain and it wanted everything to be symmetrical. And it was very hard to randomize um, without setting up some sort of um, rules around randomization. And is there a way that you could help me do this a lot more quickly? So he wrote this framework for me, this little piece of code that I can use to, to randomize my designs. So what's cool now is that, like you said, and it's all over the news, this AI-generated art and um, generative art. And so you've seen this huge, in the last three years, um, influx of artists and designers using these technologies to create digital artwork. Um, to sell them as NFTs, which is a whole other um, thing. But I've purchased a few NFTs myself. So I've got some really cool artwork that I own now that's all digital. Um, but it's a huge influx of people starting to use these technologies to um, approach art in a new way. Yeah, exciting. absolutely. And I, I think you got a lot of like um, media coverage that sort of crossed over into the tech world when you started making these quilts, I mean, looking through all the different articles that kind of covered your work, people were really intrigued by this combination because not only are you creating something randomized digitally through code, but you're actually also then making something tangible that's also very traditional. I mean, most people think of quilts, you know, they think of this very sort of old American traditional um, mm -hmm. type of type of thing. Um, and so, the, you know, that's the other piece of it that's so attractive is that it's not just creating digital art or an, an, an NFT, but it's actually then making something that's very traditional and handmade um, from it. Yeah. yeah. So 
And I think when I was, when I first started doing it, um, I was getting a lot of attention from different tech magazines or technical blogs. Um, developers and programmers wanted to commission me to make them quilts because they felt a connection to my physical work through code um, and through programming. So it was kind of interesting to get recognition in that world before I even was really aware how much was going on in the quilting world, right? Like I didn't even at the time, didn't even know that guilds existed. (laughs) I was sort of focused just in my own little silo. Um, But it is cool to take something that's, that's digital and make it into something physical. And you see it now more often, obviously, like we now have uh, 3D printers happening. Um, and then there are crafts that are inherently code-based, right? Um, any, like knitting is, is programmatical, weaving. And so in those areas, you, you will see people experimenting with taking technologies and weaving something from a code or knitting something from a code. So I think I was the first person to do it where I took code and quilted it. So I had to break it down and make it into something physical. But I do love that connection between the intangible um, digital aspect and then the physical, you know, taking something that is really traditional craft and putting a new spin on it. Can you say a little bit about like the parameters when you're putting the the, the parameters into the code? Like, what are they? Are they like like I said, like triangles and three colors and create something for me that's, you know, this size, or I don't really know anything about it. So tell me a little bit about like, when you actually sit down to to put it into this, this snippet of code, what do you, what are you putting in there? Like, what do you need to have prepared to to get ready for that process? Yeah. So in the code, I can define how large I want the grid to be. So I'm setting up a grid just like I would with graph, graph paper. and I set up colors I want to use. And often I'll pull colors from photographs or images that I like, and I'll use hex values, so digital values for each color. So I'll set up a, a color palette that I want to try out. Uh, and then I also have a whole folder full of all these different quilt blocks that I have drawn. So imagine they're just like a coloring book where they're empty quilt blocks. They haven't been filled with any colors yet. And I can pull, I can choose which ones I want to try out on the grid. Um, and then I can also play around with scale. So have them all show up on the grid with the same size or have them show up at different sizes and then they kind of overlap. Um, I can rotate them in different ways and flip them. Uh, so then when I run the code, it'll take all the blocks that I chose and randomly place them on the grid. And it'll take all the colors I chose and randomly fill every single shape with those colors. Um, and randomly rotate them based on, you know, the rotation that I've selected. So you can get these really cool uh, results really quickly. Within a couple seconds, I'll get a render on my screen. Um, and I can save that out as a PDF and then take that into Illustrator and clean it up or figure out if there's anything I want to tweak before I decide to make it into a real life quilt. So I've got thousands of renders at this point sitting in folders that I uh, have never made into quilts, but <laughs> but I always go back to them too. If there's something that I've, I generated five years ago digitally that I'm still really drawn to, then that tends to move forward and become a real quilt. So Right. Okay. All right. And I know you do teach a class, one of your classes, mm-hmm. you teach several different kinds of classes, but one of them is about creating random, randomly generated designs for quilts, but not yeah. using 
this, you know, doing it in a, in a low tech, no tech way. So yeah. for folks who are listening, sort of what are some of the, the alternate approaches you can use to try to create something a little bit more randomized? Yeah, to create something random. So the class I teach is called Embrace the Chaos because it is sort of chaotic because you don't know what you're going to get exactly. Um, But then there's a nice balance to it where we do um, rein everything in and make some decisions and ultimately draft quilts that we actually want to sew. Because, you know, you don't want to end up with something that you don't actually love and you don't want (laughs) to waste fabric on. Um, But you can absolutely, generative art doesn't have to be code-based. To make something generative or random, you can, what I do in the class is like I use a die. So we're rolling dice. We're pulling bingo chips. Um, you could set up another system of randomization where say you make a whole bunch of half square triangles or cut out a whole bunch of squares and you just put them in a bag and you pull out one by one, pull from that bag without looking and that's your next piece that you're going to attach. So there are all kinds of simple ways that you can uh, randomize a method to create something. And it's almost, you know, I don't want to say it's improv because I'm not an improv quilter. But it is in a way improv because you don't know, you know, you're you have some control, but you're also allowing things to just flow and happen. So, yeah. Um, so I'd love to go back now that we've kind of dug into what you do um, and what you're sort of known for when it comes to sort of the interface of technology and quilting and learn a little bit more about you. So um, I know you live in Canada now. Did you grow up in Canada? Where did you grow up? Yeah, I grew up in a small town not far from Toronto, so um, about an hour away called Lindsay, Ontario. Um, and my dad was an antique dealer, so that was really the first uh, introduction I had to quilting, so or to quilts. So I don't have family members who who quilt. My mother-in-law quilts, um, but as a child, my exposure was to go to auction barns every weekend with my dad because he was always picking and finding things for his shop. And he had a few collectors, quilt collectors that he would buy quilts for. So going into these auction barns every Friday night, they would be lined with quilts hanging on the sides of the barns up for auction from homes out in the country. And um, a lot of them didn't have, didn't have names or, or uh, unfortunately no names or no years stitched onto them which is always sad but you know I saw so many beautiful crazy quilts and red and white quilts and um, just really wonderful pieces so I was always drawn to them as a child because they are so big and graphic and just exciting as a kid so. And did you learn to sew as a child or did you learn sewing later? Yeah my mom taught me how to hand stitch she always says she has no, she's not very creative, but she is like, there's a practicality and importance to knowing how to do some basic stitches and how to sew buttons onto things. And I also learned how to iron things when I was very young. <laughs> that was one of my tasks. So I learned to hand stitch when I was like maybe nine, eight or nine. Um, and then in high school, I took the sewing class. So it wasn't the full home act. I didn't learn the cooking part. It was just sewing for a whole semester. And it was great. I loved it. It was garment sewing. And it was my first time really using a machine and learning all the, the basics. So yeah, yeah, sewing, sewing definitely needs to be part of school curriculum because it's hugely important for introducing kids to what's possible. And I feel like you got, you know, you walk in there in high school and 
or even in middle school and you you sort of see the potential in sewing and and yeah. you never know where that's going to go plus as you said it's a practical skill so i hope that yeah. sewing sewing in school sticks around me too it would be so i mean it is it's a skill it's hands on and also there's math involved which yeah. <laughs> which was always a challenge for me but um but it's a yeah i think i don't know i really hope they bring back more of the hands on skills and trades into schools Absolutely. Okay. So, and were you generally, I mean, you took that class, were you generally like artistic and thought you might want to become an artist or what did you think about your future plans when you were that young? Yeah, I always wanted to be an artist or in the, in some sort of creative um, job. Uh, I was always drawing. I drew a lot. I love to paint. Uh, Yeah, I was just a creative kid. So I always knew that that would be sort of where I would take things. I was also, I didn't play, I didn't learn how to play instruments through school, but I was in a couple bands in high school and my sister and I put on uh, punk rock shows in our hometown. So we had a boys and girls club and um, which was a downtown like drop-in center, but they would allow us to use their space and put on shows once in a while. So we would have all these bands coming from other towns and we would make flyers by hand. And then eventually we started, we put out a little zine together and that was all hand drawn and everything. So everything was very much do it yourself, that whole DIY aesthetic of, of how are we going to make this happen? Or like screen printing t-shirts and making album covers and things. So I've always sort of been into that, um, making things by hand. Yeah. I feel like the punk scene, the punk scene was really also a lot about handmade and Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, and I also try to tell my kids like zines, zines were the internet before the internet, like zines were blogs before there were blogs. Yeah. So. Yeah. And it was funny to like, even being here in Canada, you would have friends down in the States because you would all connect. You didn't have the internet. So you connect by writing letters to each other, um, or sending, you literally put a $1 bill into an envelope and yeah. send it to somebody and they would send you a zine. And right. it was, I don't know. It was a fun way to connect with people, but it was all, you know, done through the mail. So yeah, totally. Yeah. Okay. So you went to school, um, and you did study art, um, in school. Mm-hmm. You, you have a, a, a couple of different degrees. Is that right? Well, listen, Abby, I went to a few different places. <laughs> I'm one of those people who likes to try things and I didn't really have a lot of direction. So I started at University of Ottawa and I spent two years at University of Ottawa studying photography. Um, and then I realized Ottawa is just too darn cold for me So <laughs> <laughs> in the winter. So I came down to Toronto and I went to OCAD for two years and I studied photography and weaving and natural dyeing. So I got into the textiles program. So I spent two years doing that. Um, And then at the time, OCAD didn't give out degrees. They were a college and they didn't have degrees. And I wanted a university degree. I don't know why, but it seemed important. So I went to, I finished off at Trent University in Peterborough, Ontario, and I took cultural studies and I got a degree, uh, a BA in cultural studies. I want to take a minute now to talk with our sponsor, Lyric Kennard from the Academy for Virtual Teaching. My name is Lyric Montgomery Kennard, and I'm here with the Academy for Virtual Teaching. And can you tell us a little bit about what the Academy for Virtual Teaching is all about? We are a community 
of creatives, people who make things. We have um, mostly a lot of quilters, but we also have a lot of crafters, knitters, um, sewers, cricket cutters, all those kind of things. And we all teach online in some way, or we are interested in the technology used to teach things to people through a screen. Great. And so, I mean, I I know for myself, like it can be overwhelming to learn all the parts that are required to do this and do it well at a quality level that I would be comfortable with. So is that part of what you break down for people to make it easier to, to get started? Right. The fear of the tech, right? We've, we're all there at some point and it's always changing. We are there to provide ongoing professional development opportunities. So that is exactly it. Education on all the tech involved in building a virtual teaching business, whether that's live via Zoom or on-demand classes or just YouTube tutorials. Okay. That's great. So, and also you're covering things like pricing, because that's always really tricky marketing the class, like how do you actually bring in the right audience that's going to buy the class so you can get paid, Um, figuring out like hosting, because then you've got these big videos, they need to go somewhere where it's actually going to load quickly and have a good user experience. There's so many aspects of this. All the things, right? Um, We have two different parts of the membership. We have a general community, which is where we ask each other questions, where we just have ongoing conversations. We have ongoing business topic conversations every month. So all the parts of the business, from marketing to advertising, we did a seminar just recently on how to get a really good headshot. But we also have a masterclass that takes somebody step-by-step from the very beginning of what is an on-demand class or live Zoom class, what platforms are there, what equipment do you need, which by the way, it's always much less than you think it is, and how to use it and how to build your whole business. So there's a little bit of everything, even really advanced um, online teachers have been able to gather a lot of really good information. That's great. So Lyric, tell us where we can go to learn more. Our website is a, the number four, vt.com, a4vt.com, the Academy for Virtual Teaching. Okay. Well, I was sort of all over the place, but yeah. I got my, you know, got my hands dirty in a couple different areas. So. And then did you um, start working? I think, did you work in like marketing or advertising or something yeah. like that? Kind of had a, a real job before doing this job, which is also yeah, a real job, I mean, but different. But it's a different, yeah, it's a real, a nine to five, but right. all, usually a nine to nine kind of job. <laughs> um, yeah. When I took photography, again, this is me being like, wow, that was a long time ago. It was before digital photography was really a thing. Um, it was digital photography was just coming out and all those Adobe, the whole Adobe suite, like Photoshop and Illustrator and InDesign, those things were just starting to happen. And I was very scared of technology. I thought, I don't understand this, but I want to be, I want to be at least around creative. So I knew that if I got into advertising, I wouldn't necessarily, rather than learning those programs and getting into the creative department, maybe I could just be a project manager and be around those creative people. So I was a project manager at various advertising agencies for about 15 years. So I worked at McLaren McCann. McLaren is one of the big Mm -hmm. companies that when you watch Mad Men, I think they're mentioned because they're such an old company. Um, I worked at McLaren and the marketing store and um, yeah, a few other smaller shops in Toronto. 
Okay. That's interesting that you um, kind of chose that path in order to avoid technology. Like, I I mean, I get it, right? It was scary. And for those people who were really interested in photography or graphic design and that sort of transformation happened, that digital transformation happened, it was really a huge sea change and was scary for a lot of people for a lot of different reasons. But it sounds like you kind of chose this particular path in order to not have to learn Illustrator and in order to not have to, you know, figure out the technology aspect of digital photography or whatever. Um, And then here we are, you know, with we opened with you talking about how you use Mm -hmm. technology as a vital part of your practice. So um, anyway, I just thought that was kind of an interesting (laughs) thing to notice. Yeah, there's that point where there's that apprehension when I was younger of like, I don't want to do this. That seems, I don't know, out of my realm. And then, yeah, it is funny that I'm almost 50 and now I'm like, okay, what what else can I learn? Like, I think as you get older, you get more open to learning more things. At least I have. So um, I've become more flexible in <laughs> in taking on those things that used to scare me. I've, yeah, I'm just. Yeah, I I'm think like, that's okay, encouraging. Yeah, because sometimes you think, oh, you know, only that technology is only for the young, you know, I'm I'm too old to learn. I mean, I hear that from people all the time, but I think, I think you're right. Like I'm around the same age as you. And I feel like the older that I get, the less afraid I am to just try things. Yeah, because you have to try it. It's like the same with, I also tried to learn how to ride a motorcycle a couple of years ago and I bought one and then I learned how to ride. And then I realized nope, I like to just sit on the back. I'm not that good at <laughs> at riding it. So, uh, you know, I gave it up, but you tried I it. tried. Yeah. Check it off. the, the Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I think that's, that's a, that's a healthy and refreshing too, um, perspective. So did you begin quilting while you're working those nine to five marketing jobs just as a, a creative outlet? Yeah. Yeah. So like a lot of people do, I, um, I still need, I was still a creative person and my job wasn't fulfilling those, those creative needs. So I took a quilting class at the workroom, which is a local shop here in Toronto and they have amazing workshops. And so I signed up for a sampler class and it was just really nice to be around other creative people and looking at all the amazing fabrics that were out there and choosing all these different fabrics and cutting them up and just learning all the basics of quilting and so mm-hmm. it really was that uh that stress relief that I was looking for from yeah. my day job yeah I, I I don't know that I know about a sampler class can you say more about what that is I'm imagining making like a nine patch and making half square triangles. Like, is that what it is? So you make end up with a quilt that's all different blocks or what does it actually yeah. contain? Yeah. And I don't know if they still teach it maybe, but Johanna Masco who taught me, and that was what, 13 years ago, she's still teaching at the workroom. She's a phenomenal instructor. And I know she also does online workshops. So Johanna had this sampler class and it was you know like Wednesday nights for two or three hours over four weeks and we would do we did I think eight different blocks okay so starting with some of the really most straightforward like yeah a nine patch block and then working your way up to a block that has a little applique had an applique bird on it um, a drunkard's pass so you got a little bit of curves experience in there so yeah it was a really cool like skill building intro to quilting class. And then we went right through to how to sandwich the quilt and how to quilt it. So it was a a 
perfect. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great class and would be a great class for other people to offer. Maybe everybody already offers that and I just don't know about it, but that's a, that's a really neat class idea. I like that. And I've seen like sampler classes for embroidery where you come to the class, you get an embroidery sampler and Mm -hmm. you learn all the different stitches, but this is sort of a similar idea, but for quilting. So that's a, I, I love that idea. That's great. Um, okay. So yeah. you learned how to do this and then were you yeah. off to the races or what happened after that? I think so. Like I, I got pretty excited about it. I took another class there that was a double wedding ring, um, but it was an applique double wedding ring class. So that was exciting. Uh, and then I, yeah, I started to buy fabrics and started to do that thing where you plan all these ideas and you just start to buy the fabrics for them. And then <laughs> uh, you either get around to the project or you don't. But yeah, I just, I was pretty much hooked after that first class on, you know, this is the thing I want to do, at least, you know, as my hobby. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I spent a few years making a few different patterns, um, but then pretty quickly decided that it wasn't fulfilling enough for me to make, to follow other people's patterns. Um, I wanted to start making some of, and designing some of my own quilts. So that's where I sort of started to shift into um, drafting up my own ideas and then connecting with Joshua Davis Mm -hmm. to create these generative quilts. Right. And do you remember the first generative quilt that you made? Was it, did it come out the way you wanted it to? Uh, I still have it. It's one that I've kept. I sold a lot of other ones, but uh, I still have this one. It did come out the way I wanted it to. The piecing isn't perfect. So there's some triangles and pieces that aren't lined up perfectly. The quilting on it, I did on my domestic machine at the time, which was just a little one. And I remember having to kind of jam the whole quilt through it. Um, so this and the stitching isn't perfect on it, but I still, I look at it and I think, wow, like that's really cool. That's the first quilt that was born out of you know, a generative piece of code. So, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. super cool. Um, and so how did you, this was your hobby. Um, how did you transition to making this into your job? Because I think that's something that a lot of people would love to do. It seems very daunting though, when you're working full time yeah. to figure out how to actually make this into something that's going to generate income and, and support me in the same way. Yeah. Um, I can tell you it was a long, long time before I was making what I made at a day job. Um, and it's still, it still always makes me nervous thinking like, oh my, how am I going to do this year? And what am I going to do? Um, but so the transition was sort of a soft, nice, soft transition because I had my second child and we get a year off a maternity leave uh, in Canada. So I was on my maternity leave my one year. And during that year, I was raising my two kids, but then also spending time quilting and figuring out um, ways to make some money. So I was doing commission, quilt commissions and um, it wasn't totally intentional, but I do think by the end of that year, I said to my husband, and then luckily I have a partner who at the time too was, you know, working full time. So we've got that, that income coming in. So what I was able to say, you know, I don't want to go back to the office. Um, so I did mostly commission quilt and uh, I didn't go back to my office job, but I did continue to take some contracts. So like contract freelance um, project management job. 
because there, I wasn't making what I had, you know, when I left, when I left the advertising industry initially. So yeah, it was one of those things too, where I sort of jumped into uh, this whole quilting industry and I didn't know that there were guilds. I knew people wrote patterns, but it didn't dawn on me until somebody said to me, you should write a pattern. <laughs> I didn't, I was like, is that what people do? I didn't realize that people sold their pattern. So I wrote the rebel quilt um, and published that. And that one started to, you know, people started to purchase it and make it. And that was really cool to, that was cool to see. It's like virtually collaborating with other people where they buy your pattern and they put their own creative spin on it. Um, so yeah, I got into it basically by doing commissions, selling quilt patterns, taking on contracts. So it wasn't really full time. Um, and, and then eventually moving into fabric design with Andover, uh, and teaching. So it was like all these little things where people, it was almost like people would approach me and say, you should teach a class. Oh, that's something I can do. Okay. You want me to do that? All right. So I sort of not fell into it, but it was very organic growing my business and being able to do this full time. Um, so and and it there, is daunting. It is. <laughs> were there um, were there skills that you can identify from your project management years that that were helpful when you when you made that transition? Totally. Um, like scheduling and doing what we call work back schedules. So when I have, you know, when I'd say I want to launch this pattern. Okay, well, what do I need to do? What are all the steps that I need to do in order to get that out into the world? Um, and what are my dates, key dates that I have to hit to do those? So just scheduling. And I still use that now for like a sew along. I have always have spreadsheets going with dates and all the information and I track all of it and make sure that I'm, I'm hitting my deadlines because it's just still just me. I don't have any staff. So it's still me like planning out my mark and marketing too, because I have a marketing background, being aware of what's out there for marketing and who your audience is and where your audience is and how to grow that, which is still a huge challenge <laughs> on certain platforms. Um, but yeah, I definitely still use a lot of my um, project management skills. I would say where I fall down and I'll be honest about it is the financial side of things. Um, all the budgeting and planning and knowing where I'm, all my money is coming from and what percentage. And I'm still, because um, it's the part that I don't like dealing with, So, but I know I need to. So I'm getting better at doing, at doing the actual financial tracking and, uh, and understanding where my money is coming from and where my, my best, um, what would you call it? Like income streams. Mm -hmm. What streams are worth it? And which ones are like, actually, this isn't really serving me. So maybe I need to quit doing that. Right. It's really the analysis, the analysis of the numbers that's important yeah. there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm yeah. still learning to analyze. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's a, a big task. And you've done some really good collaborations, interesting collaborations with some, um, other companies. And I, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about, um, about how they came about. And I know about the absolute vodka one, we had done a little mm. post on our site about it. Um, and, uh, for, for our series, how I got that gig, which was a while back, but, um, but it's such a neat collaboration. So maybe you can talk about that one. And if there are other collaborations that you, um, felt like were significant along the way, we'd love to hear about that too. 
Yeah, sure. Um, so absolute vodka, this is one of those things that, number one, it, you know, was being, the campaign was being run by an agency in Toronto. And because I'd worked in advertising before, some of the people at that agency had been following me and knew who I was. Some of them had worked with me in previous lives. Um, so there was that. Also, I did a few interior design shows showing my quilts. So rather than doing quilt shows at the time, I was doing interior shows. So I did the New York Design Week down in New York City a couple of times, and I did the Toronto Interior Design Show. And through that and just showing my quilt in, in those, uh, to those people, um, one of the, the people who worked at the agency at the time saw my work and took my information. And then a year later approached me about doing this absolute vodka collaboration. So it was really cool to, you know, for once be that creative person at the table rather than being the project manager and, you know, pitching to this client and absolute vodka. I mean, I previously worked mostly in automotive on automotive accounts, which are, are somewhat creative, but there's a pretty kind of, standard advertising that they follow, but absolute is open to so many things and they're just the coolest client to work with um, because they just want you to be creative. So they were really exciting uh, to work with. Um, so I had to do, I designed the bottle itself, which was an absolute Canada bottle. And I used the programming language to, to um, generate the design. And then I tweaked it obviously. And then they also wanted me to make some quilts to go with it. And they filmed me making some of the quilts to show in their advertising. So I ended up making three absolute quilts and then doing the, the bottle, which was limited edition. And one of the quilts lives in Sweden at the absolute headquarters. And then two of the other ones are owned by two of the agency people here in Toronto. So, so it was a cool collaboration to do. It was also the first time where I did have to go in and negotiate my fees, right, and the contract, and um, understand how that part of it works. So that was a good experience, luckily. Um, yeah, but it was a it was a good it was a great collaboration. I think that was the biggest, most exciting mm -hmm. one I've ever yeah I've ever worked on. Yeah, yeah. And have there been some other ones that have been interesting over the years as well? Yeah, I did one for um, Holt Renfrew. Renfrew. So Holt Renfrew is a high-end department store in Canada. And two years ago, they approached me to do um, a piece for their holiday campaign. So they approached myself and I think four or five other quilters and designers to do digital quilts. Um, and so they used all of our graphics on their website and for their holiday campaign and for their um, gift wrapping and everything. And uh, that was an interesting one to work on, too, because they wanted some physical quilts. And so I was able to break down costs of here's what this quilt would cost if I pieced it. because There was a lot of tiny pieces and curves. And here's what it would cost if you just digitally printed it onto fabric, if you're just going to, you know, if it's just to hang in a window. So it was cool to, to have to work through that process with them and negotiate terms um, 
So which did they, which did they choose? Did they choose to just get it digitally printed? Yeah, they went with the digital printing. And I was honestly relieved because I was like, I've got two months to pee. If they want me to piece this, oh my gosh. That's right. They are not understanding what's going on to this. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So they did digitally print it and they had someone else do it. I didn't even have to deal with it, which was great. So yeah. Right. And Which they goes to me, show that like, you know, these collaborations can look like a lot of different things. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a matter of thinking like problem solving, figuring out what you can do, and then also approaching them with those ideas and not, and also asking for what you are worth and asking for what that time is worth. I was honest with them about doing a pieced quilt be a large quilt. It's going to be like, you know, 90 something by 90 something inches, tons of curves. And I think I quoted $10,000 because I was like, if you want this, we want me to tur- turn this around in like less than two months. And I need to get it quilted by someone and I need to buy all the fabrics. And it's going to take this many hours, $10,000. Or <laughs> you can get it digitally printed for, I don't know what, go check it out. Like, you know, I think I'd quoted a thousand bucks. So but I was honest. I wasn't going to price myself low just for exposure. You, I think it's when you're starting off a business, it's okay to do that once in a while. But then there's a point where you need to say you're, you need to say to yourself and to others, exposure doesn't pay my bills, right? So, so it is important to go in with pricing things with what they are actually worth. Um, Absolutely, and what time is worth. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about um, creating your own fabric because that's actually also kind of a collaboration, right? You design fabric and the yeah. fabric company has it, mm. you know, printed and shipped and distributed on your behalf. And so you are sort of working in collaboration with them, if you think about it. Um, yeah. And so tell us a little bit about why you felt like it would be important or interesting specifically for you as a quilter to design fabric. I feel like for me, it was just a natural step, something I really wanted to do because I come from that background, textile background of weaving and dyeing. And I, I also took a few workshops in like surface, like screen printing. I've always really loved patterns and like, like fabric. Well, we all love fabric. Um, but I thought like I could, I, I would love to have a collection. So and I'd love to design fabrics for others. Um, part of the excitement is, you know, getting a collection out into the world, seeing how people react to it, and then seeing how they make it their own, which is, to me, it is like this virtual collaboration, not just with the manufacturer, but with all the people who buy it. I love seeing it mixed with other designers' fabrics um, and how people are going to use it. So it felt like a natural step for me. So I was actually at my first ever quilt con, and I think that was in 2014. It was down in Austin. And I was with my friend Jacqueline Sava, who owns Soak Wash. I was hanging out in her booth and she said, so Libs, what do you think you want to do next? And I said to her, well, I think like I'd love to do a fabric collection if that's a possibility. And up walks Daryl from Andover Fabrics. And Jacqueline said, let me introduce you to my friend Daryl. Have a chat. And so that's how that started. It's so much so much of this is all about like networking and meeting people and putting yourself out there. Um, so I met with Daryl Andover and then I flew down to New York, uh, in 2015 to meet with them. And I took all these designs I'd done in processing and I printed them out on big sheets 
And by the end of the meeting, I had a contract. So that was really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it also speaks really to the value of showing up in person when you can, um, whether it's at a consumer show like like QuiltCon or at a trade show like Quilt Market where you're there and you have these connections that people can make on your behalf. Sometimes they're almost random or just by happenstance, like, you know, somebody Mm. walks into the booth and let me introduce you. And, um, and it really makes a huge difference to to show up. Yeah, it does. It really does. And I'll tell you the first time, the few times that I did like those design shows, I'm terrified. I'm an introvert. I, you know, I get so nervous having to talk to people about my work or introduce myself. Um, But the more you do it, the easier it becomes. And it's, it is so important. And no one, once you realize when you're in spaces like QuiltCon or Quilt Market, mo- for the most part, people are happy to share their knowledge. So it's it, like, I understand that trepidation and like asking someone for information about, hey, where do you get your patterns printed? Or, hey, how did you get into fabric design? Most people love, right now, I love talking to you about my my journey. And I love sharing that knowledge. And I think a lot of especially the quilting or crafting industry is all about sharing knowledge with one another to help each other take things to the next level. Um, so it is really important to show up. And I understand that that nervous feeling we all have, but I just I go for it. That's my <laughs> my advice is just go for it. Just ask. The worst thing that can happen is that you ask someone for some information or for a connection and they say no. Right. Or they say, sorry, I'm not, I can't do that for you. And I've not had that happen yet. So um, I would hope that nobody does that. But if it happens, oh, well, okay, fine. you know, move on to the next person. So Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and you were with Andover, then switched to a different fabric company briefly, and they're back now with Andover. And I wondered if you could talk just briefly about why that might happen for designers, where they switch to a, a different fabric company, because there's, you know, probably three dozen or so um, companies in the quilting world that, you know, produce quilting cotton um, and, you know, have freelance designers that they work with. And and it's fairly common actually for designers to move from company to company over time. So I just wondered if you could shed some light on on sort of how that happens or why that might happen. Yeah. You know, I guess it is common. um, And that's why I felt like, oh, maybe I'll just take a chance and try something different Um, because there are so many I mean there are some of these big manufacturers um, they all have different ways of functioning and running they all have different types of contracts and agreements Um, they have different places that they get their fabrics manufactured um, and different team setups different ways of marketing so I think you know, I just got curious. I'd been with Andover for quite a while and I got curious. And during the pandemic, you know, I'm based in Canada and I felt like, oh, I'm never going to be able to leave home again. And there's this Canadian company that I decided to um, switch to. Um, My contract with Andover was just sort of rolling over and I gave them enough notice that um, it left me in good standing with them. Um, and I switched to Figo Fabrics, who are owned by Northcott. And, um, you know, I really loved the way that they do their marketing and they have a really wonderful team. Um, but then eventually, you know, I was with them for two years and decided that it just wasn't a fit. 
that I really missed Andover. And Andover was like, for me, it was very much like it's a family run business. And I felt like part of the family and it, it did feel really awkward um, to have left them and gone somewhere else. But I was like, no, this is a business decision. Keep the business hat on, not the emotional hat. So I did that. And then I realized, no, you know what? My contract was ending with Figo. It was a two-year contract and it was coming to an end. And so I gave them notice and I said, you know, I'm, I, this was great learning experience and I really enjoyed working with you, but I'm, I'm, I'm done here. And so then I switched back to, I went back to Andover. Um, who just felt like a better fit for me. So, and I think that's what designers do. I mean, you're looking for a good fit just from a business perspective and workflow and team perspective and, you know, um, and, and also your contract as well, obviously. But um, yeah, I feel, at least for me, I can't speak to other designers who switch to different manufacturers, but for me, it was all about fit. And I really felt like, I feel like I'm part of that Andover family and it's very collaborative. I work quite a bit with, not just with the creative director, but also with the marketing team and the distributor team and like the warehouse people, like I'm in contact with everyone there. So um, I really enjoy being part of that team. So yeah, it would be interesting to get more insights. I think overall that whole um, designer and manufacturer relationship is very, we don't talk about it a lot, or at least I don't know a lot about it. I don't even know, you know, how the other designers at Andover feel or, you know, what their contracts are from a business perspective um, or why they stay with Andover. And it would be interesting to get more insight from the other designers about, well, why did you choose this manufacturer and what are your terms or what do you look for when you're looking to partner with a company? Um, yeah, we don't always share a lot of that. so. It's good to talk about it and be honest, right? Yeah. Um, oh, and it allows other people to to get some insight into like what goes on in that world or how do those relationships work? Absolutely. Uh, and you've yeah. also added a new income stream. I don't know how new it is, but another income stream, which is Patreon, which allows mm-hmm. you to have um, supporters who support you in a different kind of way. So talk a little bit about your Patreon and um, why you decided to choose that platform and kind of what um, what the insiders get, uh, the patrons get um, from being part of, of that membership. Yeah. Um, Patreon, I started about six or seven years ago. I was like the first quilter to use that platform, I think. It was really new to me. Someone had told me about it. Um, I had no idea what it was. Uh, so I checked it out and realized, oh, there's this, it's pretty cool in that you can get people to sign up for memberships at different tiers or different levels. And depending on the level you're at, the amount you're paying, you get different rewards. So I have a few different tiers. Some people are in it and they get a mug every three months or they get a sticker or Um, I also give out free patterns for people who join. I do block of the month for patrons. So we do a block. Oh my gosh, we've been doing a block of the month for this will be 16 months. We're we're done. After this, it was the longest block of the month program was not a good decision, but we're almost done it. And I'm really proud of my patrons. But like for $3 a month, you could join that and get a free block and a video tutorial. I do virtual hangout sessions. So we're all really getting to know each other and connect with one another, which is really fun. 
um, in per- like not in person, but face to face, which is a nice, it's the only time I get to talk to other quilters is uh, on my Patreon Zooms. So it's a really interesting um, platform to, to use and to, that's where I blog and um, yeah, and to capture people. And then what's nice is those people are my supporters. So whether they're paying $3 a month or the $25 level, um, that is my only guaranteed income every month is Patreon. So that's my one, you know, it's a huge, even $3 is a lot of support for me. It helps pay a lot of my bills. It pays for my studio space. It pays for my kids' lunches. Like, <laughs> um, So it's been really good to have a Patreon. Um, yeah, and I'm always trying to grow it or figure out new, new ways to make people stick around and get new people to join um, and to keep it interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I think recurring revenue is really, really um, nice, and it could can become a really important part of the the overall puzzle mm-hmm. of making this work. Yeah, and I know that there are some new platforms out there, so there are some that I've been checking out that I feel that I may end up migrating to at some point that are a little more community focused or allow more interactivity than Patreon. Patreon seems very much more one way where you're pushing information out and there isn't a lot of, there's no forum basically Mm -hmm. for people to really chat. Right. Right. Um, So there are limitations to Patreon. So I have been looking into some of these new platforms, Um, but I do think it's really cool. There are, you know, now there are more and more quilters and craft people who are moving into these um, membership and subscription services. And it really, it really is helpful, especially, and I understand, I've heard some people say, you know, on Instagram or some people say like, I don't like the idea of having to pay a monthly membership to access your creativity. And I understand that. But also, I don't have it like this is my day job. This is what I do. So it's not like this is supplemental income to me working somewhere else. This is what I do for a living. So I do appreciate when people sign up and pay that membership fee. Um, Yeah, so it is a and then so there are those people who are like, I don't like having subscriptions. And I totally get that. It's just another can be just another payment thing that you have to make every month. But it's also very cool that most of these platforms allow you to get a couple months free, drop in or drop out whenever you want to and stop your subscription and resubscribe. It's pretty straightforward. And there are lots of people who do support it. And I'm just like super thankful. I have patrons who've been around for the six or seven years, like from the start. And now they're good friends and, you know, always connected in person. And it's more than just a transaction for me. It's very much also about building um, a community and, and making connections with others. So, yeah. And I know there's a, there's a price on that, but, um, but it's uh, like, I'm really grateful to the people who support me. So, and you have a sew along coming up. I think it's, um, it's coming up in April. So tell us a little bit about Mm -hmm. that. Yeah. So like I said, with Patreon, I do these block of the month programs. Um, and I've done quilt alongs over there too, but I just, I've realized you know, I miss doing a big sew along with everyone. So I've got this new quilt pattern out called Static Age. And it's all these lightning bolts. And it's a really fun, pretty straightforward pattern. And so I decided to do a sew along starting in April on the 24th. And it'll be seven weeks of step by step 
um, instructions. And so I'll send out a weekly email, video tutorials on how to do the stuff we're doing that week. Uh, I'm partnering with a bunch of different really great shops in Canada and the U.S. to do some giveaways every week. Um, so that's exciting. And I think it helps to build on um, my relationship with shops too. So as a fabric designer, it's very important for me to help promote all our small businesses and all our independent fabric stores. So if I can do a sew along and help some of those shops put together kits and sell their fabrics and sell maybe some of my fabrics, um, that helps to support their business. And then it helps to support mine because then it adds to my email list. So it's just this new, I mean, for me, this is a, I haven't done a public sew along in a long time. So it's cool to see already I've got 300 people signed up and we're still a month away from the start. So that's really good. Um, yeah. That's great. Yeah. And I love what you said about supporting shop owners as a, both as a designer and as a fabric designer, but quilt designer and a fabric designer. I think that's so important. Mm. So, yeah. Um, I want to make sure we get to your list of recommendations because you've got a couple of really good ones. One of them is Heidi Park's arthritis and hand yoga video. And we'll link to that in the show notes. And we've had Heidi on the podcast in the past, but tell us why you like this particular video. I love all of Heidi's hand yoga videos. Uh, <laughs> about a week before QuiltCon, my hands started to really just tense up and I was having a really hard time even like picking up my mug of coffee in the morning. And so I was like, wait a minute, Heidi has this whole series of hand yoga videos on YouTube for anyone to watch. And she takes you through different steps on hand exercises. And it's so important um, to keep our hands soft and supple and movable, especially in what we do. So She's just very calming too. Like, you know, you've met Heidi, like she's just got this amazing calm presence. So um, yeah, hand health is really important. I've it realized. is, no matter what kind of craft you do, it, it no. is, it's important for all of us. Um, and you wanted to recommend an excellent podcast that I love too. It's the Stitch Please podcast with Lisa Wolfork. Yeah, so Stitch Please, uh, I've been a Patreon supporter of Lisa's for a while now. Um, I love her podcast. Before, again, before QuiltCon, she was she had organized this amazing space at QuiltCon, the um, So Black Affinity space. It really, I feel like it's really helping to shift things at QuiltCon at that kind of an event. Um, but I was sort of, I don't know, sometimes I get all like, ugh, I'm feeling overwhelmed about going to QuiltCon. And then I listened to her interview with Carol Lyles Shaw, and it just got me pumped. Like, they were both so well-spoken and just excited about getting there and just hearing someone like Carol speaking with Lisa. It was just really inspiring. And it got me excited again about quilting in general and going to one of those events. Um, so she just, she's always got fantastic um, interviewees on, on her podcast. She and does. I, I feel like I'm, it. I feel like it's like taking a college class sometimes when I listen to it, like she's, she really teaches you. Yeah, she does. She teaches. Uh, yeah, she's fantastic. It's good. And I was yeah. so happy to have a chance to quickly meet her at QuiltCon and give her a hug. Just what she's done is just, yeah, it's really wonderful to see. And to just, so I, I also recommend, you know, if you haven't checked out the podcast, check her podcast out, but then also sign up for her Patreon and just listen and just take it in um, because she's fantastic. 
So absolutely. And uh, your last recommendation, I haven't played with these yet, um, but I'm interested in trying them. They're so tight magnets. And it's Mm -hmm. kind of my understanding is they're sort of an alternative to pins or clips. But how do you use them? Yeah. Yeah. So I use so tight for all my English paper piecing for holding the paper pieces together. They're these great different, they're magnets and they come in different strengths now too. So um, I actually have one out with them. That's a little diamond and it's a lighter magnet. So it doesn't take quite as much work to pull the two sides apart. Um, So something that's got a lighter hold and then they've got heavy hold magnets that are great for things like bag making. I don't make bags, but if and when I do, I'll get out those magnets so because they can hold all those thick layers together. Um, and I also use them just as like needle minders. And mm-hmm. I use them to put blocks up. I've got a metal door in my studio that I can stick blocks up with the with the magnet mm-hmm. on, so I'm not putting pins through fabric. So yeah, so tights are really cool, very um, multi-use and and handy to have in your toolkit. Yeah, absolutely. I love them. That's great. I'm going to get some and try them out since they sound really helpful. I'm working on an English paper piece tote bag right now. So sounds like it could be good for me. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, Livs, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I really enjoyed talking with you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And it was great to chat with you. And you've been listening to the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today's episode was sponsored by the Academy for Virtual Teaching, a community of creatives building proficient, profitable, and professional online teaching businesses. As a solopreneur, you understand that feeling of exhaustion. There are limited hours in the day and only one of you to go around. The Academy for Virtual Teaching will help you develop the skills needed to add online education to your business model. It's a free private membership community of supportive colleagues sharing the love of making things with students around the world. They've got an entire library full of equipment reviews and technical skill building workshops. They invite you to join the Academy for Virtual Teaching at a4vt.com. That's a, the number four, vt.com. They can't wait to see you there. Thank you so much to the Academy for Virtual Teaching. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals. When you become a member of Craft Industry Alliance, you get in-depth coverage of craft industry news, the opportunity to connect with fellow professionals for advice and support, and access to an educational library filled with ideas, tools, and resources to help you as you build your business. Join us at craftindustryalliance.org. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.